This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. So Russian President Vladimir Putin will bring a long laundry list of issues to talk about at his first summit with the U.S. leader. We're talking about President Joe Biden. That is happening in Geneva tomorrow, even as the Kremlin says there is little chance for a breakthrough in relations. So we are expecting it, though, Tim, to be a long meeting. Yeah, to the tune of four to five hours. It's long. It is long, especially at the tail end of a European trip such as this. Well, joining us now is Jordan Fabian, White House correspondent at Bloomberg News. Jordan joins us on the phone from Washington, D.C. Jordan, set expectations for us going into this uh, for the United States. What is a win for Joe Biden, the Biden administration in the U.S.? Well, I think the Biden administration is hoping for the president to send a tough message for Vladimir Putin. Uh, That might not be enough to deter Putin from continuing his malign activities uh, from you know, cyber hacking to election interference. But it may have a political benefit for Joe Biden here at home. He ran on uh, taking a tougher line against the Kremlin, contrasting to Donald Trump's approach of trying to form a personal relationship and get concessions out of the Russians. Uh, that clearly didn't work. And so uh, this meeting might just be entirely for domestic political consumption because it seems hard to see uh, any kind of breakthrough or or even any kind of concrete agreements coming out of this meeting tomorrow. Hey, Jordan, my understanding is there is no joint press conference after it. So that also kind of speaks to the idea that they're not expecting any big revelations or changes in this relationship. That's right. And you know, each leader is going to do their own separate press conference. And what you know, White House officials have told us is that they wanted to minimize the chances of some kind of surprise that you know, Vladimir Putin somehow pulls some kind of stunt or find some way to step on President Biden's message. How do you read into the length of this meeting, four to five hours? I mean, in some cases, it, it you know made some reporters here harken back to when Putin met Chancellor Merkel and she he brought her his dog uh, knowing that she was afraid of dogs. That's right. I mean, there's a high prob- high possibility of some kind of stunt here. I mean, Putin is a former KGB operative is known to kind of play mind games with his counterparts. And yeah. uh, I also note that this is a four to five hour meeting without any food. Apparently there's not going to be any uh, meals on the agenda. So uh, possibility Wait a second. Ability by the end of that. I'm just going to say, if I'm president, I'm going to put in my rider that I want. <laughs> I want blue M&Ms. Blue M&Ms at least if I have a four to five hour meeting. Precisely. So, Okay. So is it just a case of let's hope we walk away and things aren't worse than what they've been? What, what's the goal? What, you know, and I think about our Bloomberg audience who are making investments, watching geopolitical discussions and tensions or lack thereof. I mean, what is it that an investment, global investment audience maybe should be listening out for? Is it potentially reviving the Iran nuclear deal? What is it, Jordan? I think it's a couple of things. I mean, one, from an investment perspective, I think the U.S. and the Biden administration in particular want some more predictability in the U.S.-Russia relationship. So, uh, you know, they want more open lines of communication. 
they want you know fewer dust ups, and they're going to lay out, or President Biden's going to lay out some uh, areas where he says uh, it's going to be a red line where the U.S. might respond. And then also they're going to talk about ways they can work to, together. You name the Iran nuclear agreement as one. Uh, officials have said that they're going to start talking about renewing this nuclear arms treaty called New Start, which is due to expire in 2026. So they're going to try to find some areas for agreement, uh, but those are obviously overshadowed by these big, huge areas where there are just vast disagreements. What about when it comes to human rights and specifically dissent within the country of Russia? And I speak, you know, with the background of uh, Alexei Navalny, who's in prison Mm -hmm. there. That's right. You know, West officials have told us that they they view that as uh, an issue that's on the table. So, you know, Biden has said repeatedly that he's going to raise those kind of issues directly with Vladimir Putin. Uh, You know, that's something that Donald Trump said that he, he didn't directly raise with Putin. He was sort of putting those issues to the side in an effort to have some kind of grand bargain with Putin. Uh, Biden's taking the opposite approach, uh, confronting him over these issues. But again, you know, you know, multiple presidents have tried this approach. You know, Barack Obama, George W. Bush, Bill Clinton, and uh, you know, Vladimir Putin has never changed his behavior uh, in, in the way that the U.S. and the West would like. So it's hard to see what would come of it, even though you know, Biden's going to be delivering this message tomorrow. Where's, what's the China role in all of this? Well, it's interesting. You know, I think uh, you know, Russia has always had a bit of a contentious relationship with China, mm-hmm. but I do think they're also wary of the, the U.S., their effort to kind of rally NATO and, and to confront China. I mean, I think they would, they, you know, Russia is a place, Russia is a government that wants to kind of disrupt the West. And, you know, maybe they view China as a useful foil in that regard. So, you know, Putin has made some comments leading up to this meeting that, he views this uh, U.S.-led effort to try to get tougher on China warily. And so, I mean, that could be something that uh, you know, he could raise with Biden. Of course, you have four to five hours is a lot of time. They could cover yeah. a lot of ground. Hey, 20 seconds left here. Uh, is Putin in touch with the former president, Donald Trump? Do we know anything? Yeah, we haven't heard that at all. But, uh, I mean, it, it, and nothing with Donald Trump would surprise me. So, but possibly. <laughs> all right. Well, listen, great uh, preview of the upcoming meeting. Really appreciate it. Jordan Fabian. A Bloomberg News White House correspondent on the phone from Washington, D.C. What? I'm not expecting a soccer ball to be gifted this time around, <laughs> like we saw in Helsinki, Carol. I wonder if he'll have like a thermos of coffee, Joe Biden, just in case. At least, I mean, a bathroom break. Or Four something. to five hours. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. So, Tim, nice to know things can change. We got some evidence of that today. You mentioned earlier the EU and the U.S. agreeing to a five-year trade truce involving the big aircraft manufacturers of the world. We're talking Boeing and Airbus. Brooke Sutherland is Deals and Industrials columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. She joins us on the phone from New York City. Brooke, it's great to have you back on the show. Take us into the details here and, and, and how big of a win this is, not just for uh, Boeing, but for Airbus as well. It's really a win for both companies. I mean, this has been going on for quite some time. I mean, nearly 20 years at this point. And, you know, it it really was sort of getting to the point where uh, the fight was not helping anybody. Um, And, you know, the the EU had made the same argument uh, that the U.S. had made against Airbus, against Boeing. Um, You know, both companies relied on some sort of state support to get these uh, some of their planes developed. I mean, these are very expensive 
programs. They're very complicated. They take a, lo- a very long time. Um, and so, you know, it, it wasn't really helping anybody to keep pointing fingers when, when you were doing some of the same things yourself, essentially. Um, and then especially, you know, as you get into the pandemic, this that really started to look like a pointless relic. I mean, you had government spending over backwards to really support both the airline and the aerospace manufacturing industry through the pandemic. And so, you know, I, I, right. I just think that it's a good positive forward for all involved. So Brooke, I want to kind of do a Bloomberg quick take with you. So the problem was there was this disagreement and this spat that went on, as you said, for 20 years. And it really was cumbersome in terms of the global aircraft market, I guess you could say. So what, first of all, why was it put in place to begin with? Well, it sort of evolved in different um, <laughs> phases, I suppose, over the course of the 20 years. So sort of at the heart of um, the U.S. complaint had to do with the Airbus A350 and the um, now uh, shuttered program for the A380. Um, The U.S. accused uh, the EU of essentially giving Airbus significant subsidies that allowed it to develop its aircraft and really sort of break Boeing's lock on the market. Um, So there was some thinking that the U.S. just couldn't let this go because it just couldn't believe that it was no longer the only plane maker in the game. Um, the EU, of course, countered that, that the U.S. has done its part to support Boeing over the years uh, and, you know, that they didn't really feel like the U.S. had a ground to stand on here. And it, and it just sort of became very political and very drawn out. Um, and, mm. you know, when that is the nature of these things, they, they take a very long time to solve. But, um, you know, in the end, I, I think probably the lawyers benefited the most from this. They always do. Um, Brooke, uh, China, where does China come into this? Because uh, Airbus and Boeing have a duopoly when it comes to to airplanes like this, at least for right now. And I'll never forget a few years ago, I was in Shanghai and I was driving to the airport in a taxi and I passed what looked like an airplane manufacturing facility, similar to what you see if you fly into Seattle and you, Mm -hmm. you, you know, drive into the city and you pass what Boeing is doing there. And I realized this was for, for COMAC, the Commercial Aircraft Corporation of China, essentially China's version of Boeing and Airbus. How does this play into the agreement that was struck? So China is uh, very, has been very clear that COMAC is a priority, that they would like to have a commercial aerospace competitor uh, to Boeing and Airbus. They are not there yet. Um, there, there's not really a plane that can rival, um, you know, the 737 MAX or, you know, the A320. Those are really... The, the marquee jets for Boeing and Airbus, and, and China can't do that yet. But they, you know, are clearly making this a priority. They are investing a lot. Um, they clearly enjoyed being able to be the first ones to ground the Boeing 737 MAX because, you know, one of the big questions about COMAC is whether it will be a safe as what Boeing and Airbus can offer um, and, you know, whether China has the, the reputation for safety and quality control necessary to, you know, sell airplanes to the West. And so for them to take that stand to be the first one to do so, I think was sort of a, a pivotal moment in their uh, aerospace journey, if you will. Um, but like I said, they don't have a plane just yet. Uh, I think what you're worried about with Boeing and Airbus is not necessarily whether COMAC will start flying or will be sold to, to Delta, mm. um, but, you know, whether the Chinese airlines will predominantly choose COMAC airplanes. Uh, and if you look at the future growth trajectory for planes, a significant chunk of that future demand is coming from China uh, and from other parts of Southeast Asia. So, you know, COMAC doesn't really need to win over Europe and the U.S. They, they need to be able to went over these these Chinese airlines. Um, and, you know, especially if those airlines fly domestically, 
that that is an easier hurdle uh, to clear. Hey, does it make sense that we're seeing a little bit of a pop in Boeing uh, today? It's up about 1%. Airbus ADRs are just up about half a percent. But does it give some clarity, some ease if, you know, you're an investor in Boeing shares to some extent? I think it's helpful. I mean, we've been Mm. trending in this direction for a while now. Um, So in March, you know, the two sides agreed to suspend the the tariffs that were put in place as a result of this uh, dispute over aircraft subsidies um, while they worked to an agreement. And so it's definitely a positive to to get this cleared. I mean, the last thing Boeing needs right now is (laughs) another reason not to buy airplanes from it. So, um, you know, it's it's certainly helpful. What about when it comes to resolving lingering trade wars that the United States has with many different areas of the world. And we only have about 30 seconds, Brooke. Sure. I mean, I I think it's definitely a positive step. And I think just the mere fact that we came to some sort of an agreement is certainly a change from uh, the Trump administration where, you know, they actually were raising the stakes in this Boeing and Airbus dispute. And and so to be sort of, I guess, taking a step back from the battle line and and focusing on cooperation and coming to agreements, I think only has to be interpreted as a positive sign. Now, the the steel and aluminum tariff issue is a little bit stickier, but uh, we'll see. So wine and cheese safe, though? I I hope so. (laughs) For now. Okay. Just getting priorities straight here, at least mine. I've been worried about steel and aluminum. I don't know what your head is, Tim Stenovic. <laughs> uh, good stuff. Brooke, thank you so much. Brooke Sutherland, she is deals and industrials columnist at Bloomberg Opinion on the phone in New York City. Check her out at BLSUTH on Twitter. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. Well, the cover story this week, it's also today's Bloomberg Big Take. Uh, the story, though, in the upcoming issue of Bloomberg Business Week magazine, Airbnb spending millions of dollars, Tim, to make nightmares go away. Joining us now is Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week. He's here with us in the Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. Also, Olivia Carville, technology reporter at Bloomberg News, joins us from here in our Bloomberg New York City bureau. Uh, Joel, as soon as I started reading this story early this morning, I, I, I could not put it down. What who is on the safety team and the sort of first responders uh, at Airbnb? And, and, and what do they do when it comes to crisis management? I believe it's called the black box. So uh, <laughs> Olivia's story uh, uh, brought many things to light. Um, one being that the, the real bedrock of Airbnb's business model is trust. You check into someone else's apartment sometimes or, or house. Sometimes that person may be occupying that same space or in yeah. a different room. Um, and the whole thing that makes the, the business work is is that you have trust in this system. And what uh, Olivia's reporting revealed was that oftentimes stays don't go well. And that could be uh, more run-of-the-mill things of like just a trashed apartment, or it could go very, very, very bad. And there have been cases um, of rape that was previously unreported that Olivia found out about, um, murders, uh, violent crimes. And when that happens, there is a safety team that Airbnb uh, has assembled around the world, um, 100 agents, that basically the worst of the worst situations end up going to that group of people. And Olivia um, basically was the one that has revealed that this team exists, that they're under mental duress for all the different types of cases that they have to deal with. And that, you know, this is a thing that um, for investors, this company is now publicly traded. People haven't known that this is a dark side of this company in quite this way. 
Um, so, so Olivia, how about you bring us up to speed on, on you know, how, how you went about reporting such a remarkable story? Yeah, sure. Thanks so much for having me on. I feel like this story, really the crux of it was to understand, you know, to get inside the safety team and to really get to the bottom of what happens inside Airbnb when things go wrong. So initially when I started reporting this piece, it was about trying to find insiders at the company who would be willing to talk to me about the stress of the job and just the the process of when something happens inside a listing like a violent crime and a call comes through to the Airbnb customer service rep, what actually happens? How does the company handle it? Who does it get transferred through to? And what do they do about handling you know, public image, reputational risk, brand risk, given that Airbnb's entire business model really rests on that idea of, of trust between strangers. To them, public image is just so crucially important to, to you know, growth and, and revenue. So, Olivia, how does it work when things go wrong and often, as Joel mentioned, horribly wrong? Right. Well, if... If a call is to come through to Airbnb related to anything concerning safety, so when I say that, I mean anything involving a child, cases of human trafficking, drug trafficking, kidnappings, hostage scenarios, sexual assaults, rape cases, murder, anything that enters that kind of like significance of a real safety crisis, it will immediately be transferred through to an internal safety team of agents. And as Joel mentioned, Airbnb has about 100 of these agents based all around the world who are trained in trauma. You know, they they specify and specialize in how to handle cases of trauma. They're taught how to deal with suicidal ideation. They're taught to, you know, how how to help talk with a sexual assault survivor and the best way to support her in that moment. And um, for these safety agents, it's all about doing what they can to protect the individual in crisis. And also they do have a dual role to protect the company's public image at the same time. Joel referred to the duress that these safety agents experience. What is the toll it takes on them and, and how do they deal with it? A lot of the safety agents I talked to um, expressed vicarious trauma. They say that they suffer from PTSD from the job. I mean, they willingly walk into it. They, they want to do this kind of trauma work, and I think it takes a certain person who's attracted to this particular role. A lot of them comes from backgrounds of emergency services work or even from the military. They've, um, you know, as I said, gone through a lot of trauma-based care training. They have counsellors on site to help this team. They have specialised cool-down rooms with dimmed lighting to help them answer those really tough calls. And for these agents, you know, when you handle a case of an individual who has been um, assaulted, raped, who has you know, lost a loved one, maybe lost a child in a listing, you form a bond with the individual over the phone. And a lot of these safety agents talked about cases where they're still in touch with those families years after the crime has happened. You know, it stays with them. One safety agent I talked to handled a case of a missing person who just disappeared from a listing. And three years after that occurred, he was still Googling that individual's name to see if there was, you know, if they were ever found. So you can you can feel when you're talking to these individuals, just the heavy personal toll it has on them and, you know, how much they 
they care for the people that they're, they're trying to help, but also how they were so torn when it came to their role in, you know, trying to keep these cases quiet or trying to do what they could to protect the company's public image at the same time. They really had to wrestle with that um, difficulty. And, and you know, the opening uh, of this story is rooted in uh, New York City. In 2016, uh, near Times Square, uh, on New Year's Eve, and there's a case that Olivia found in her reporting um, that the company Airbnb, following this um, uh, this rape, uh, the survivor was paid seven million dollars, um, which was you know a huge number when you think about it, right? Mm-hmm. Like I, clearly a very bad thing, but a huge number. Olivia, there's also a policy element to this because that case basically happened at almost the worst possible time for Airbnb because of its battle with New York City. Can you talk about why New York has always been so important for Airbnb and and why that case was so significant? And forgive me, Olivia, you have to be quick. Just got about 20 seconds here. Sure. I mean, New York is one of Airbnb's biggest market. The regulatory risk there was huge because it could lead to a domino effect. So the company needed to do what it could could to try and keep this case, um, you know, to try and do what they could to handle this case as, as well as they possibly could, knowing the potential regulatory risk there. Incredible story. It's out on Twitter. It's at Bloomberg.com and it's in the magazine, the upcoming issue. Olivia Carval, who wrote it. Jill Weber, the editor of the magazine. Thank you. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. So TikTok, everyone, the policy setting arm of the U.S. Federal Reserve. We're talking about the FOMC. They're kicking off their two-day meeting today. Uh, we are expecting some changes. We are. I'm, but the we don't plot. know. We don't projections. know. Yeah, projections. But, you know, we're still waiting on headlines for tomorrow. Exactly. So let's see what Stephen Skenke is expecting. He's chief economic advisor at Kill Point, former U.S. Treasury and White House National Security Council staff member based in Washington, D.C. And that's exactly where we find him on this Tuesday. How are you? I'm great. Thanks. It's always good to be back with you. Well, it's great to have you here, Steve. So what are you expecting? We are, at least our economics team and others, are forecasting that that dot plot, we're going to see some changes and that we'll get some expectations of interest rate changes in 2023 versus after 2023. I think that's a fair assessment. Uh, the, the indicators are positive uh, generally, uh, which gives the Fed confidence. Uh, but at the same time, you know, it is in an excellent position to be able to do absolutely nothing and feel good about it at this meeting. The, uh, the good employment number, the, the good jobs numbers uh, uh, for, for May and April were, were positive, but well below expectation. Right. Uh, uh, the in, inflation number headline is a little bit of a surprise, but from uh, April to May is, is down uh, a little bit than what it was from uh, March to April. Uh, and when you when you look at where the impact is and what are the subcategories that that, that had the biggest uh, uh, change other than energy, it, it's things like uh, uh, used cars, uh, uh, rental car prices, uh, whereas the uh, the food cost for people eating at home was up 0.7 percent year over year, uh, housing up 2.2 percent year over year, medical care services up 1.5 percent. So, so, so not something that uh, threatens to build 
inflationary expectations. And, and I think that's uh, that's what the Fed sees here. So it sounds like you are somebody who's not concerned about inflation being persistent. It sounds like you're somebody who thinks that the data is pointing to this being transitory. Well, at this point, uh, the the biggest impact on pulling the index up uh, has been in categories, say, for energy uh, that are largely transitory. Um, you can you can go to a, a number of the different categories when you when you look at what the BLS put out last Thursday, and uh, and really understand what it was that was going on, and uh, that just provides confidence uh, as to it not being something that's uh, turning into a problem. Um, will will the Fed Fed revise its uh, summary of uh, uh, economic projections, maybe to, to, to notch it up a little bit uh, for the year. I doubt it, uh, just because there's no reason for them to do that yet. You don't think the um, dot plot, Steve, you don't think they'll change it at all? Oh, I think they I think they may change the dot plot okay. uh, a little bit, uh, okay. just because that's that, that that's the nature of being together mm-hmm. and, uh, and trying to express some thought about what might be happening with the data that they're receiving. Uh, but we are still very much within that uh, that window of of burning off uh, 2020 COVID uh, low base uh, effects, and uh, so they they don't want to seem concerned, but they certainly want to seem aware. That was brilliant. Still in the window of burning off covid low base effects i mean that's the point i mean you just look at the labor market right and it's over seven million jobs in the u.s uh that we still have to get back to get us to the point of being at pre-pandemic levels look at it globally i was looking at some numbers globally and it's over 70 million some 75 million jobs uh, that are short of its pre-crisis path so that's a big one the labor market steve well, and, and, and Carol, three and a half million fewer workers in the labor force. Mm-hmm. Uh, people, people who just went out for, for a whole host of reasons, of course, but many of them related to, uh, to COVID. Uh, time to retire, felt greater exposure, not motivated by the, uh, the wages that are, uh, that are being paid. You know, when the Fed looks at this, uh, um, it, uh, it, it wants to see wages rise. Uh, and before they call the labor market tight, they want to see that, that businesses are actually offering to pay higher wages and still people are not coming. So um, can, wait, that, let me ask you something, though, on wages, because Tim and I talk about this a lot. We've seen Chipotle and others. I mean, there are instances where wages are going up. Why is it that we are so dismissive of it? Is it because it's on the lower end of kind of the wage scale? I think that's part of it. Uh, okay. um, you know, when, when, when we look at what... Uh, uh, people in the, uh, I'll just call it broadly, hospitality, uh, restaurants, uh, lodging, uh, people who interact with the public in some way or another, uh, they traditionally have been paid uh, lower wages and, uh, and well below the $15 an hour. And, and now as there's been pressure and publicity about uh, several of the big companies saying, well, we're going to pay people $15 an hour. We're just going to step it up and do that. Uh, the, these other folks say, well, now, wait a minute. I'm not getting $15 an hour, and I'm really on the front line uh, being exposed where uh, uh, this virus still tracks. And 
I'm just not interested. I'll, I'll do something else. Uh, I'll wait out my unemployment benefits uh, until they fully run out. Uh, and, and, and that that can happen really without causing alarm when you look at it from the Fed's perspective. But when you when you sort of just read the headline numbers, of course, that that attracts a lot of attention. And that's the sort of thing that, that will generate some interest and maybe uh, some adjustments to the dot. Plot. Stephen, just in 10 seconds, what's the piece of data that that worries you that says that inflation is not transitory? That we. Uh, continue to see increases in uh, in some of the uh, basic core areas. Okay. Uh, the basic core areas. Dr. Stephen Skanke, Chief Economic Advisor at Keel Point, also former U.S. Treasury and White House National Security Staff, Council Staff Member. Always great when he joins us. Thanks so much, Steve. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, uh, just about uh, 10 and a half minutes left in today's trading session. We're bouncing around a little bit here on this Tuesday. Let's get to it with Brad McMillan, Chief Investment Officer at Commonwealth Financial Network. He is on the phone from Waltham, Massachusetts, approximately $232.5 billion in assets under management. Brad, good to have you back with us. Uh, what's on your radar today? Well, just watching the uh, recovery continue. There's a lot of headlines. There's a lot of scary things. And right now, I think the Fed is going to be the next data point to drop. What are you expecting with that data point? What are you watching for tomorrow? I think they're going to do nothing. And I, I think that for a couple of reasons. First of all, inflation is not going to be a problem. Yeah, we got headlines, but they'll pass. Employment is still a problem. And they've said that's what they're focused on. So, A, they have no reason to. B, they have no reason to. The whole time. <laughs> well, that's what we just talked about. There's still more than 7 million Americans out of work. If you take the global snapshot, there are more than 70 million Americans, I mean, 70 million folks around the world that are out of work. And so that is, to some extent, an insurance policy that when it comes to monetary policy and policy overall, it's going to be stimulative and easy until we see those numbers correct, or at least get closer. I think that's exactly right, Carol. And, you know, I think one of the things out there is there's this huge problem and it's this disconnect with the, with the labor market. There's a labor shortage. What's interesting is if you go and you look at the number of people who are out of the labor force but who want to get a job, that pretty much fills that labor gap. So we know it's going to happen, but we mm -hmm. also know it's going to take some time. And that's what, we, that's what the Fed is watching. How long is it going to take? Brad, what, what changes your mind? You say that, you know, in, in inflation is not going to be a problem. Uh, employment is still a problem. What changes your mind and says that inflation is a problem? What's that data point? I think it's nothing but time. I mean, right now, if you look at uh, the two-year numbers as opposed to the one-year numbers, we're still within the range. The, the one-year numbers are the bounce back up, and we're forgetting about the drop down during the early part of the pandemic. Now, if that stays up once the year-on-year -year comparisons start to normalize, 
that says we got a bigger problem. But right now, it doesn't look like that's going to happen. Some of the higher frequency stuff, lumber, for example, is already starting to roll over. And we're going to see that with most of the other stuff as well. Right. Lumber, copper, we've seen that as well. Uh, and, and those are the kind of metrics uh, that you really follow in terms of inflationary pressures, because they can often be, if they tend to stick, that's when you start to get a little bit nervous. So in this environment, then, what do you advise investors to do? I mean, it's hard to kind of beat the U.S. equity market. But having said that, we are seeing ETF flows increasingly. We've seen money flowing into European ETFs versus U.S. ETFs because the U.S. prices and valuations have gotten a little bit lofty. U.S. valuations, if you look at it, are actually down a little bit on a forward earnings basis. Now, they're still not cheap, don't get me wrong, mm -hmm. but they pretty much held around 22, and now they're about 21 or thereabouts because earnings are growing faster than expected. And there's probably still some upside there. So I like emerging markets. I think they're going to catch up with us at some point. I like U.S. markets. Developed foreign markets, eh, not so much. Um, yeah, specifically, what what are you, what are you referring to? I mean, can you can you be more specific with those markets that you're that you're excited about? I like the U.S. I like um, India. India has had a terrible experience with the pandemic, but they just like the United States. They're a democracy. They will get through this. They'll have some resilience. So I think there's some opportunities there. I think if you look at some of the Southeast Asian economies, there are chances. You know. They are still going through the pandemic, but again, they supply the United States. So they're going to have a demand-driven push once they get through the um, once they get through the pandemic. Again, that's not going to happen immediately, but anybody who's in a position to benefit from the U.S. reopening, once they get their own house in order, is going to do very well. Hey, what about consumer discretionary? My understanding is that is an area that you like specifically, some confidence and uh, disposable income that's out there. Having said that, the retail sales numbers today, we did see a shift out of some of the things that people have been buying, like things for their home and the auto sector. So where within consumer discretionary, Brad, do you find opportunity? I think you're going to find a lot of people as they move back into the workforce. And I mentioned all the people who are out of the workforce who are coming back. Mm -hmm. are going to be going for small luxuries. You know, I think companies that cater to, you know, the average person are going to do very well. I think companies that cater to the average shopper who's going to be coming back, who's going to have some discretionary income, are going to do very well. I think Main Street America retail is going to do very well. Main Street retail, because it's interesting, someone was telling me anecdotally, being at a mall in a northern New Jersey suburb and said the lines were just out of the boutiques like the Chanel boutique and the, you know, the high end luxury is high end luxury something on your buying list as well. Yeah, I think when I when I talk about Main Street, I think I'm talking about the average person, which would include okay. malls. Yeah, you know, so I think that's. Um, the average person has been sitting at home. They still have a lot of money set aside, and they want to go spend it, and they want to go have a good time. And part of that is shopping as an experience. When you say experience, I mean, are you thinking more about moving away from what we've had over the last 16 months and the idea that we've gotten so used to shopping online and going back to what we were seeing before the pandemic when retailers and, and other other stores were trying to create experiences that you couldn't get online. You think Americans are going to go back to that? I do think that there's a reason to go back to that. In fact, I think they have to go back to that. Because if you can buy anything easily, 
why wouldn't we buy it on So, for example, if Walmart is competing against Amazon, what can Walmart offer that Amazon can't? Now, you might say that's not necessarily an experience, but it is an experience to go out to a shop. If you look at Target, same thing. What can they offer specifically that Amazon can't? And then, of course, at the high end, you have the high end retailers. But you can create that experience at all levels. And I think increasingly, you're seeing all retailers try and make that happen. So one place you would not want to be as an investor right now. One place I would not want to be as an investor right now. <laughs> Putting you on the hot seat there, uh, Brad. No, I think it's a great question. Um, I think I would say, I would say some of the, I, I would probably say crypto. Hmm. There's been a lot of volatility really? out there. There's been a lot of, um, it's basically a story asset. And my question is, how much more good news can go out there? I mean, we, I'm, I'm just not sure I see the upside from here, from a sentiment point of view. I'm not sure mm-hmm. where I see the marginal buyer. All right. We're going to leave it on that note. That's good to know. Uh, and great to get your perspective. Brad McMillan, Chief Investment Officer at Commonwealth Financial Network, uh, joining us on the phone from Waltham, Massachusetts. They've got roughly $232.5 billion in assets under management. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.